I only got about a hour's worth of stuff to put into 45 minutes, so pray for me as we go. Um, my, my sermon this morning, or my talk this morning, is on preparing for heaven. See, in light of the, some of the recent events that have taken place, it got my attention. I think about Kate Visnitsky, who passed away at 67. I think Danny Fry, who was 48. I think Ann Eva, she was 89, but it was unexpected nonetheless because she was doing very well and was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and died within six weeks. I think of baby Aspen, who is a great, great, or great niece or great, great granddaughter of dad's, a great daughter of Melanie's, who only lived a few days because of complication from a lung that she had. And they all passed kind of suddenly and unexpectedly. And God got me thinking about my own mortality. See, we're not guaranteed this lifetime. None of us are walking out of this thing. Short of the Lord coming and returning, none of us are walking out of this thing. We are going to be carried away in some form. But as I was meditating one day and reading the book on holiness by J.C. Riles, I came upon a section about sanctification, and he talked about, he asked the question, are you prepared for heaven? And I didn't think much about it initially, but as I meditated, I thought, I, yeah, I think I am. I know I'm prepared in that I've received Christ as my Savior, but is my life that which would indicate that I'm prepared for, for heaven? Am I prepared to face your eternity? To apply this sermon more as much to myself as I do give it to you. As I look upon my own life and how I, what I'm doing, the things that I do, things that I may not be doing, that I should be doing. So it's as much for me as it is for you. Am I prepared to stand before the creator of the universe? <clears throat> Am I prepared to stand before my savior, Jesus Christ? Am I prepared to stand on the day of judgment? Ask yourself that. Are you prepared? When I was in the Air Force, about 1975 to 1980, in the winter of 1977, 78, that was the year of the, uh, we had the big snow event here. And we were coming home, we were driving home. I had an infant daughter, was only like five months old. And we decided to drive home from Las Vegas to here. And all we had at the time was a, a Ford Econoline panel van. Two seats, that was it. There was no, nothing in the back. So in order to prepare to get ready to come back to Pennsylvania, I had, to, I had acquired a little cot that I stuck in the back. Now, and I prepared, we got a, um, a lawn chair that was a rocker type, so she could rock the baby, put that in the back. Now, now today, this wouldn't be acceptable. I mean, the chair wasn't anchored down, it just was there. The bed wasn't anchored down, and we were driving straight through. Lord forbid if we'd have had an accident and somebody would, it, we could have been bad, but we did it. But I prepared the van the best that I could, had a toolbox full of tools that if I had to do something minor, I could, had chains put in there because I didn't have, we have summer tires in Las Vegas, they don't have winter, so put chains in the van. I put extra oil in there and extra antifreeze, so I prepared the best that I could in order to drive this thing home. And praise the Lord, we got home without a van. Nothing, nothing happened. We drove straight through, took like 50 hours, and we got home, and we pulled in the driveway, and this particular time, the only people we told we were coming home was Grandma and Granddad Courtney. We didn't tell Mom, we didn't tell Dad. It was a surprise for them. So we get out of the van, we walk up to the door, and we just walked in. <laughs> and, uh, 
Mom's standing on a chair decorating a Christmas tree. And we walk in the door, and she turns around and screams, pretty near wets herself, <laughs> falls apart, and she is a total mess. I mean, she is done. I mean, you as a parent, your, parent, your kids come home, surprise you like that, and you're not ready, and she was a total mess. But she was not prepared for us to come home. So I used the illustration to say, are, are you prepared to go to heaven? We're all preparing for something, are we not? We prepare for an education through our elementary years, high school, even college at times. We prepare for a job. We prepare for a career in the job that we hope we would get. We prepare to have kids. We prepare to raise our kids, hopefully in the admonition of the Lord so they'll be respectable and adults, contributing adults. We prepare to then have grandkids. Then we prepare to retire. And then we prepare to die. I mean, it's getting more common to go to a funeral home and, and set up all your funeral death, all your funeral arrangements before you die. So everything's in place, so you're prepared to die, right? This morning, we're going to look at Hebrews 11, 13 to 16, just, three, or just those four verses in Hebrews we're going to talk this through a little bit and see what God would have for us in it. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. This is the faith chapter. I think that's what we know it as. It talks about the faith and those who went before us. So before we look at God's word, let's have a moment of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for which has been laid on my heart, I pray that I would only bring forward that which you would have said, that your word would be proclaimed, Jesus Christ would be glorified, that your name would be lifted high. Pray for a calming spirit, recalling the words that you've given. Pray for those who receive this message, Lord, that they would glean something from it and apply it to their lives. We give you thanks, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Hebrews 11. We're basically going to be looking at verses 13. To 16. So this is a faith chapter. It talks about those who had gone before them in the faith, uh, Abraham and others who, who have followed God, Sarah and those. And then he, he's telling about all these people. And then we have this kind of a little bit of an interlude, if you would, between this list of all these saints. And then you got this in here. It's almost like the reason why this is here. So as we look at this, I'm only going to look at one verse at a time. And then I'm going to talk about it a little bit and then move from there. So verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar, they were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So this word promise is talking about the promises that God had given. It's what it is in the Greek, the word means to declare, to do something without implication or with the implication of obligation to carry out what is stated. It's a legal term. It's a legal term that refers to something that is officially sanctioned promise. For example, if you make a contract to sell your home, you are then legally obliged to sell your home. You have made that legal obligation. So thus you then have to sell it. So that's what it's talking about here when he talks about this promise, that they have made this promise. Almost every New Testament uh, of the word of promise 
refers back to or points back to the Old Testament and the promises that were given in the Old Testament, the blessings being promised out by the Father. If you turn to verse uh, 1139, just a few verses forward, uh, verse 39 says, All these things, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. So they did not receive the promise. So what promises are they referring to here? What promises did God give to them that they did not receive? They pro- God had promised them the promised land, and they had received eventually. They did have the promised land. They had Israel. But there were promises that they did not receive. If we look at Galatians 3.14, you have that for the screen for me? Galatians 3.14, it says that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You notice there, there's two promises there. The blessing of Abraham for us, the Gentiles, is Jesus Christ. And the second promise is the Holy Spirit. So those are promises that they did not receive in the Old Testament. But these are the promises we have received. We have received Jesus Christ. We have received the Holy Spirit. We have received the promises that, were, that they had not received. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 for, these, for this, we also, but, but what promises have we not received yet? There are promises that we have also not received. And this is the verse that talks about. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven and shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, And it goes on to say, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to the air. See, the same way they were looking forward to the promised one, we are looking forward to the promised one's return. We have not received that. Sometimes you think about what what was their salvation. Their salvation was the promise of Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. We have received that, but we also know that we have not received Jesus Christ personally from heaven to us, and that day is coming. That's a promise that's been given to us, right? So as we uh, look down to verse 14, for those who say such thing declare that they plainly seek a, a homeland. For this word declare means to, it's the present tense indicating that they continually declare. It's a word that's been translated to emphasize. Uh, the Greek word is emphazeno or something like that. I don't like to say the Greek words because I can't say them right. But at any rate, it means to emphasize. They emphatically tell the world that this world is not their home. That's what they're trying to say here. They seek another home. They seek, they seek a promised land. They seek that which they could not have, they did not have. And the word seek is an actively looking for. It's not passive, but it's active. It's a word like working to find their homeland. They were working for that, seeking hard after that which they had not got. So they were seeking out their homeland. Verse 15, and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. If they wanted to, they could have returned to their country. Abraham could have returned to the land of Ur. The children of Israel could have returned to the land of Egypt. And there were those who desired to, those who wanted to return. You remember this, you know the story. And now they fought with Moses and said, we want to go back. And Moses was having none of it because God had made the promise and God, or, yeah, God had made the promise and Moses believed it. And they were going on. Noah 
He could have stopped building the ark. He could have went back to his house and said, this is just way too much work for me. I can't handle this. Or he could have said, the people are just so badly bugging me here that I can't take these people laughing at me and scoffing at me building this ark. And he could have went back to the house and said, I'm done. Let's cash in the chips. Let the thing be there. We can burn it for a bonfire. But he did it because they had a, a desire to live and believe in the promises that God had given them. They so despised the country or the thing that they were going from, they came from, they would not even consider returning. It wasn't even in their mind thought. It wasn't even, they weren't even going to think about going back. They were moving on. They could have returned, but they didn't because they were looking for a far better place. But how about those who did look back? Consider Lot's wife. When she looked back, she turned into a pillar of stone. And for whatever was lost. I think of Ananias and Sapphira. How they brought their goods, they sold with some of what they had and brought them to, to the apostles. And then they said that this is everything. We've given you everything that we got. Here you go, have it. Well, they were lying. They lied to the apostles. They lied to the Holy Spirit because they had kept in reserve that which they wanted for themselves and they wanted to return to it. And they died that very hour. They were carried out that very hour because they had turned and went back. Verse 16 says, but now they de desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God for he has prepared a city for them. The word for desire means to properly stretch towards. A pitcher, if you would, a runner stretching toward the finish line. I can remember watching the Olympics and watching the uh, field and track and that they were doing. And you see a runner coming down for the last, and right at the last second, he lunges for the finish line. And you would see a guy win by hundreds of a second because he lunged to the finish line that last second. He would not give up until he acquired that which he desired. Or another visual for you is think of a baby reaching up to his parents' hands. Think of little Daniel over here reaching up to Danny, Dan, to be picked up. Pick me up, pick me up, Dad, pick me up. And maybe Dan's busy and he doesn't do it. He's working on something and he doesn't pick up Danny. Pretty soon Danny's back again. Daddy, pick me up, pick me up. And Danny doesn't do it again. So what do you suppose happens the third time? Huh? The kid takes a fit. You know, he's not quitting until he gets his desire. His desire is for his dad to pick him up. And if he doesn't do it, you're going, Dan, Dan may pay the consequences of a screaming child. That's what you got to envision when we see this word desire. How much they desired, they grasped for, they were looking for, they were grabbing onto it. Mark 8:38 tells us, for whoever ashamed me, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. God is not ashamed of them. You can leave that up. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Literally, God is not ashamed of them. Or as one commentator said, it could be said that he was proud of them. He was proud of them because they desired the promised land, desired that which would please God. Mark 8, 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels, the verse he was thinking about. So if we're ashamed of God, God will be ashamed of us. And finally, he prepared a, he prepared a city for him. He has prepared a city, and in John 14, it talks about, there's no scripture for this, I go to prepare a place for you. 
So God is preparing a place for them. He said that in his verse, I have prepared a place because you desire and I'm not ashamed of you. I will prepare this place for you. See how that works. They were obeying, they were in the faith, they were desiring him, they were following the promise and then God was not ashamed. And because God was not ashamed, he desired to build this, he built a city, he prepared a place for them. Imagine what that's gonna be like when you compare it to the world. I mean, this world, there are so many beautiful aspects of it. If you travel the United States much, you travel the world, you can see how beautiful the, the, the world is, really. Sunrises and sunset at the ocean, the mountain scenes, the valleys that we get. There is a lot of beauty in this earth. But God is preparing a place for us that is far better. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as... It is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. This is a story of God's love, if you think about it. God had made a promise for him. God was going to make a city for him. God was proud of them. God had made promises for him. And he declared, they desire and they seek the result of God as a preparation, a place for them to go. So that's a study on the scriptures. How do we apply this to ourselves? How do we apply this scripture to ourselves? There's a story that says, a man encountered two young boys and asked them, do you want to go to heaven? Not me, said the one. And the other was shocked. You don't want to go to heaven when you die? Oh, when I die? Well, yeah, sure, said the boy. I thought you were getting up a group to go today. How many of us said in our lives, I want to go to heaven, but I'm just not looking to go today, huh? Because we're so attached to this world. But why not? Heaven is gonna be a wonderful place. So how do we prepare for heaven and how do we prepare for our eternity? So what I'm gonna to try to do here is I've got seven points that I'd like to make to you and I'm gonna to try to refer back to the verse and then tell you how that kind of applies. So the first point, regeneration. Verse 13 said, they died in the faith, the faith in the promise. We need to be regenerated and inseparable from Jesus Christ. That's the first step. Without that step, none of these other steps even matter. If we're not regenerated, if we're not born again, they do not mean anything. Without the acceptance of first of Christ, there is no eternal life. Titus 3, 4 to 7 says, But when the kindness of the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing, this is key, regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. So the regeneration and the renewing is through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we shall become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We shall become heirs. I like to think of the example as, my wife, Val, is the daughter of Raymond Nelson Sr. Ray has put together a trust. And within that trust indicates what, the, what Val and Raymond Jr. will receive or what, what Raymond's desires are for them, how to divvy up those things which he has accumulated over his lifetime. The trust is to be enacted upon his death. God has given us a trust in a way. He has given us his word. And within that word, that entitles what we are to be received. And part of what we are to receive is Jesus Christ as our Savior. We are to receive eternal life. That's what's been entrusted to us through his Son. 
And as a result of receiving Jesus Christ, we will then be prepared for heaven. Our only hope of eternal life is only through God's Son. Only through Jesus Christ. In John 3.18, it says, He who believes in him, Jesus Christ, that's Jesus Christ, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. So for you, the non-Christian, this is your point here. For the non-Christian, if you are here today, the rest of this sermon, in a way, doesn't apply to you. Because you have not received eternal life, there is no preparing for heaven. You are not prepared. But if you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you, are, you will be prepared. And then you'll be, looking, you'll be doing going forward to these fo- the following points that I'm going to try to make. Without Christ, there will be no desire to learn of him. You may have a desire for heaven, because most people want to go to heaven. But you won't have a desire to seek him. And you're certainly not going to be called by God. God's going to not be able to say that he's not ashamed of you because you've not accepted him. We talked about that scripture. You are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. Point number two, work. Verse 14 says, seek a homeland. They were actively doing something to achieve a purpose. That's what work is. I looked up the definition. To do something with intentionality to achieve a purpose or a result. And they were doing that. They were actively seeking to do something for a purpose. They were seeking their homeland. Abraham was seeking the promised land. Moses was seeking the promised land. Noah was seeking a way out from punishment and the judgment that God was, was going to pour out. Some folks have the idea, if we work, we are trying to earn our salvation. And that's not true, though. But there are faiths that do believe that. There are some faiths that say, you must go to Mass. You must go to church. You must go to confession. You must pray to a certain icon. You must give your money for a certain thing in order to be justified. Because it was your duty for salvation. You're not doing it because you love Jesus Christ. You're doing it because it's your duty to do it. But I'm talking about a love of Christ. The love which you do because you love Jesus Christ the work that we do because we love him, and the word compels us to do that. Some people don't think about that, but there's so many scriptures that I've found in here about God compelling us, Jesus Christ compelling us to do the work of Christ. Ephesians 2.10 is one of them. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see that? God had created. We have been recreated through Jesus Christ for what he has done, and we have been created for good works that God prepared beforehand. Even before we were saved, God had prepared works for us to do. So what are some of these works, and what does that work look like? Spiritually, Bible reading, prayer, excuse me, prayer, being baptized, Taking communion, which we're going to do here in a little while. Attending church, communion of the saints. And physically, becoming involved with the body of believers. Hebrews 10 talks about not forsaking the assembly of the saints to do that which God would have us to do. Our need for the next generation. Todd mentioned this this morning. I'm going to mention it, talk a little bit about it. It's to step up. We need to have leadership step up. We need Bible school teachers or Bible teachers. We need Sunday school teachers. 
We need deacons. We need elders. We need children's ministry. We need youth ministry. We need mission committee members. We need kitchen workers. We need praise team members. And the list could go on and on and on and on. I'd like you to consider just the elder board. Okay? The average age of our elder board right now is about 60 years old. Now, 60 years old is when people start kind of, you know, trying to back out of stuff, retiring, things like that. And one of the examples I give on the board is David Rule. Dave, due to some physical conditions, you, you're all aware of it, was going to be stepping away from our church, and he's going to be going to Oregon, and we're going to lose him as an elder. This is going to be a huge loss for our elder board. Dave did so much in this church. He taught Bible study. He taught Sunday school. He visited several families for Bible studies. He called on the sick. He visited those that were in need. This man did a, he is to me, it typifies someone who works and does the work because his love of Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to do that to obtain heaven. He's obtained heaven. But he does it because he loves God, because he loves Jesus Christ. He's very, to me, he's very exemplary of Philippians 4.12. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have already obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You notice what it says there? It says to work out, not work for. We must work out that which God has given us. Even Christ, when he came, he had a work to do, did he not? He healed the sick. He loved the unlovely. He carried his own cross to his death. He conquered death by rising again from the dead and ascended to heaven. Those were all work that Christ did while he was here. J.C. Rouse, in, in the book that I quoted, uh, Holiness, says, you can be sure that if the Savior of sinners gives us renewing grace and calls us by his Holy Spirit, that we can be sure that he expects us to use our grace and to not go asleep. He expects that from us. Our faith is not something that we're to sit on the sidelines and watch. We are not a football team where you're a substitute player and you sit on the sidelines and you never get to get in the game. Our faith is that's what we want to get in there and play. Want to be a lineman? Want to be a defensive back? Want to be the quarterback? But our, we're not to sit on the sidelines. When we become members of this church, we are not joining a social club. To just sit there and, and watch on the sidelines as people do the work, and we just sit there and not do nothing. That's not what we're doing, not what we're called to do. God has called us to lead and reach a dying world. And we need to become involved to do that. Now, the involvement that you have has to be led by God. God has to pour into your heart something that He would have you to do. We're going to talk about that a little more. Number three, please God. Verse 16 said, they, de they desire a heavenly country which is pleasing to God. In 1 John 3.22, says, and whatever we ask of him from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things, we are pleasing in his sight. We keep his commandments 
and we become pleasing in God's sights. Are we trying to please God in your daily life? When something comes up in your life that's sinful, do you say, God, is this pleasing to you? Instead of just going ahead and doing it? Or are we living a life which would reveal that we have no desire to please God by the way we live? Are we jealous about our neighbor's possessions? Does jealousy rage in you? Are you contentious with a spirit that's always full of arguments and debating everything that goes on? Do you have hatred in your heart, perhaps for your wife, your husband, perhaps towards your employer, perhaps toward others in general? Do you gossip, always looking for rumors to spread, especially negative ones? Are you backbiting, telling untruths about others in order to make them look bad or to make yourself look good? Do you have outbursts of wrath? Are you angry that it gets you out of control, that it gets out of control? Yelling at your spouse, perhaps, at your kids, perhaps the guy in the other car because he cut you off? Or do you live a partial adulterous life by dealing with pornography? This has to be one of the hardest things that men face. It's one of their Achilles heel. Even within the church, it's an issue that must be, if you look at people, look at other women, or it could affect women, look at other people in an inappropriate and lustful manner. This is not, these things are not those things which God would have you do. And I would encourage you that if those things are things that you wrestle with, that you fight with, that, that are your Achilles heel, and you suffer from these items, reach out to an elder or to a trusted Christian and talk to them about it and perhaps become, develop a relationship where you can become accountable. If I had done accountability earlier in my years, I, I would not, I believe this, I would not have suffered some of the grief that I have suffered in my life just by becoming accountable to somebody that can hold me accountable. I, I gave you that at no church. Um, so then we go on here. It says if you would like, okay, Galatians, uh, this isn't up there. Galatians 5 said, and those who, 521 said, those who practice these such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You get that? Those who practice, who, who, who are habitual. Yeah, there are times when we fall. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about those who habitually live the lifestyle of these issues. But the opposite also true. Galatians 5, to 24 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Do you get that? We have crucified mortified mortified is to kill those things which are not pleasing to God because we are of Christ these are the things that we do to prepare us for heaven and to make us pleasing to God number four endure verse 16 says now they desire a better that is a heavenly country they desired heaven because they wanted to be there and that's what their God had promised them one of the promises if you look at Hebrews 3, 6, I'm not going to ask you to turn there in light of time, but it says, but this isn't on a board because it's in Hebrews. But Christ as the son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and of the rejoicing of the hope that we have firm unto the end. If we hold fast to that, that's what he's talking about. 
This is a word of encouragement. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to hold fast to the confidence that we have in Christ Jesus until the end. This is a holy confidence and a love of God because it's salvation by Christ. Number five, sanctification. Verse 13 says, having seen them from afar, they were assured of them and embraced them. They were moving forward. They were becoming holy. If I, if I, read, I read that into it a little bit. It doesn't say that outright. But we grow in grace and we grow in sanctification. We become, the word sanctification, become more holy. Holy and acceptable to God. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23 we read, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be sanctify you completely. Well, in this lifetime, we won't be completely sanctified because we are sinners by nature and we sin clear up to the end. But we need to move forward in our sanctification, our holiness to Christ, our holiness to God. This, I'm going to quote now J.C. Rao from that book, Holiness. And this is kind of the whole key to what got me thinking about this topic. He says in, uh, in his book, sanctification is absolutely necessary in order to, to train and prepare us for heaven. Most people hope to go to heaven when they die. You believe that? I believe that. Most people hope to get to heaven. It's a fair statement. But few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether or not they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are holy. Its activities are all holy. And to be really happy in heaven, it is clear that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we are here on earth. There's a lot there. I mean, the guy could preach a sermon just on that. It may be feared and take the trouble. They don't take the trouble to consider or not whether they would even want to be in heaven. For those who desire to be in heaven and they live a lifestyle that's not heavenly, you wonder why would they want to be in heaven? I mean, they're probably not going to have a good time because God has not called, they have not received and given, been, have not received the, the gift of eternal life. Point number six, we are sojourners in this world. Verse 13 said, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the world. They lived the life indicative that they were only pilgrims and that they were only passing through this world. The word program comes from the word, it means one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there side by side by the natives. Hence a stranger or a sojourner in a place or a foreigner. Metaphorically, it means to be, heaven is a native country. And, though, and we who sojourn there are the Christians who are sojourning to heaven. I think about when I was in the Air Force, I, I mentioned that earlier, that uh, when I was in the Air Force, I was subject to the rules and regulations of the government. I served at the government's pleasure, if you will, because I joined the military. And I was a member of the military. But I wasn't, wasn't going to reside there forever. That wasn't where my home was. And when I discharged from the military, I had purchased the home where I live now. And I looked so forward to going home, to getting away from Las Vegas, to getting out of that city, to getting away from the military, and to come home to the, to the home that I bought where I now live. And I so look forward to that. And I equate that to how we look forward to this. We are here in this, we are just sojourners here. We are only here for a short time. 
And now we will go to our home, our homeland, which, we have, which is waiting, that God is preparing for us. And lastly, point number seven, judgment day. Verse 10 says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. God was not ashamed to be called their God. He's not going to be ashamed to be called our God on the day of judgment. One day we will face judgment for what we have done on this, with our lives here. What we have done with our pilgrimage in this life, we shall be judged for that. Doesn't mean we'll be judged for condemnation. We will just be judged for how we did with our life. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in this body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We will all appear before God and before his judgment seat. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for judgment? God loves us so much, folks. He loves us so much that he provides the tools and the means to prepare us for heaven. He has given us his word. He has given us preaching. He's given us teaching. He's given us everything that we need in order to be prepared for heaven. And if we do not accept that or do not, do not take that into ourselves, we will face the ultimate. And the ultimate would be separation from God forever. Not being in his presence forever. Are you prepared for heaven? Are you prepared for eternity? Are you living a lifestyle that others would know that we are prepared? Are you doing the work that God is calling you to do? Are you working out your salvation? Are you enduring to the end, not giving up, not giving up on the promises that you made or on the promises made to you? When we accept Christ as our Savior, we make a promise that we have accepted him. God has made a promise that he will accept us when we accept him. Are you growing in sanctification and holiness? Are you mortifying or killing sin in your life? Are you trying to please God? Are you looking forward to and not looking back, returning to your old sinful nature? Do we recognize that we have a future judgment day and God is going to judge us all? Are you going to be prepared? Are you going to be, or are you going to be like my mom? When she was totally unprepared for us to come home, and she wet herself and she cried and she was a total mess. Lord forbid that you stand before God and you're not ready. I think it'll be far worse than that. There'll be more than crying and gnashing of teeth. British scholar Harry Blamers, in his classic book, The Christian Mind, states, the prime mark of a Christian mind is that it cultivates the eternal perspective. That is to say, it looks beyond this life to another one. I'll share this poem with you closing. When in glory I shall see the man who died on Calvary's tree, to look upon his gracious face and know that I have run the race, to hear him say, well done indeed, and know no longer any need, to be with him forevermore, my soul will then forever sure. Amen. God, add his blessing. Lord, we thank you for this word. I pray that as we walk away from this place that we would recognize, Father, what you would have us to do, how you would have us to act. Draw us to yourself, Father. We give you thanks for your love for us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the work that he did that brought us our salvation. We thank you for all these things. In Christ's name, amen.